What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. I'm, I'm usually not shocked by, by bad ideas because I've seen so many of them. But the way that all of the serious people decided that public debt was the important problem and that unemployment could be put aside as an issue really startled and shocked me. I'm Linda Yu. I'm an economist and author, and it's my pleasure to be here with Paul Krugman to talk about his new book, Arguing with Zombies. It's fun. It's accessible. So I'm just going to kick off with the title. Arguing with Zombies, Paul, you describe zombie ideas as, quote, ideas that should have been killed by contrary evidence, but instead keep shambling along, eating people's brains. (laughs) Shall we go through some of the zombie ideas that uh, refuse to die in your book? And I'm just going to start off with the first topic you cover in the book, which is Obamacare, um, health care provision, and that was extended to tens of millions of people under President Obama. So the zombie idea there um, that just refuses to die that you refer to. Yeah. So in that case, I mean, it, it. I think it's kind of amazing for anyone who's not living in the United States and accustomed to our strange political environment, how many people in the United States believe that universal health coverage is impossible, undoable, that it's uh, that that government uh, provided health insurance or government regulated health insurance is is somehow inherently disastrous and destroys freedom, of course, where every other advanced country has already achieved that. And so we have Obamacare, which is a a bit of a Rube Goldberg device. It was because of the political constraints. It was designed to disrupt existing arrangements as little as possible, which meant it's a kind of a somewhat complex system. But it works. I mean, we got 20 million people who didn't have health insurance. We got them health insurance. And we this is now – this system has now been in existence for the, – the, the legislation was passed a decade ago, the, the – uh, the full program has been in existence now for seven years and there's still people insisting that it doesn't work, can't work and that it does terrible things and I, I it appears that no amount of success, no matter how long we go along and this becomes part of the fabric of American life, there will still be people, important, powerful people insisting that this is disastrous socialized medicine. The next one, bubbles and financial crises. Okay, so I'm not sure – that's not fully – I mean, not everything in the book is about zombies. I mean, if I would say the zombie that underlies this, I mean, bubbles will always happen. There are always going to be 
people get enthusiastic. A bubble, uh, it, it, you know, there, there have been scores, if not hundreds, of financial bubbles over the course of of the modern era. What matters largely is is what happens. First of all, what happens after? I mean, what, how serious is it? If you're going to have a bubble in something, you're going to have a uh, some piece of the market where people become excessively optimistic. And uh, but what happens when the bubble bursts? And the the re, uh, a large part of the reason that that the housing bubble, the the sort of North Atlantic housing bubble, was so disastrous was that we had effectively deregulated the financial system. Partially through explicit deregulation, for, partly by failing to keep up as as we moved from conventional banking to new forms, shadow banking, we didn't extend regulation. And you would think that the catastrophe that followed would tell people, you know, maybe this faith uh, uh, that banking is a self-policing sector, that you don't need to have government regulation, and in fact, government regulation is bad, would be reconsidered. And there's been remarkably little people, remarkably little reconsideration. We still have the prejudice that uh, what's good for the bankers is good for the, is good for the world, despite, you know, 30 million unemployed workers as proof that that ain't, ain't so. So amazing, actually. The, the absence of reconsideration of free market dogma in the aftermath of the financial crisis is startling. Another one that's going to be uh, certainly related to the last um, housing bubble crash, the zombie ideas around austerity. Now, that's an interesting – so most zombies, uh, most zombie ideas are kept alive by financial interests. Uh, if you're actually asking you know, why do people believe that tax cuts for the rich pay for themselves or claim to believe it, why do people believe that environmental regulation is is impossible and destructive you can point to money you can say well you know billionaires have an interest in promoting the doctrine that says that cutting their taxes is a good thing in the case of austerity and budget i think it's a little there's a little bit of that but mostly it's so i talk in the book i talk in, in arguing with zombies about very serious people that's capital V, capital S, capital P the idea that debt is a terrible problem and that the urgency of of reigning in budget deficits trumps everything else, even even with mass unemployment, is something that sounds serious. Sounds like it's it's hard headed and realistic, and because people who sound serious say it, other people think that they sound serious by saying it. And it's totally unsupported by the evidence. All the evidence says that debt at the levels that we now that now exist in advanced countries are not actually a serious problem. And all the evidence says that slashing government spending in a depressed economy deepens the depression. And yet the idea persists. It's, um, it, and has had, you know, it, it had enormously destructive effects. Uh, I actually didn't manage to get this in, in arguing with zombies, although it's implicit, but, uh, we can, we can pretty much using standard estimates, we can say that the U.S. could have been down to 4% unemployment by about 2014 if we hadn't engaged in, in austerity policies. So, uh, wow, the amount of – and it was startling, I have to say. I, few things I'm, – I'm usually not shocked by, by bad ideas because I've seen so many of them. But the way that all of the serious people in around the Western world decided in 2010 – with mass unemployment, that 
public debt was the important problem and that unemployment could be put aside as an issue really startled and shocked me. Why do you think that was? Because um, you do spend some time in the book talking about austerity, the the conceptions around debt. Why do you think, as you say, a lot of zombie ideas is because there's this financial interest. But in this area, why do you think this idea continues to persist? Because even now we hear it on the campaign trail. People are talking yeah. about austerity. I think there are, now one one piece of it is political. So there conservatives in, in the U.S., and I think to some extent in the U.K., but certainly in the U.S., tend to believe, probably correctly, that there's a halo effect, that a- any program, any successful government program tends to make people look more favorably on the possibility of other government programs, so that a successful fiscal stimulus program in the face of a recession might pay- make people think that, well, maybe we can also guarantee health care for everybody. And at the same time, Conservatives, very much on both sides of the Atlantic, used this kind of debt panic as an excuse to cut social programs. So this was a – there was partly – it was kind of a cynical abuse of the uh, perception that there was something scary about debt to to pursue a conservative social agenda. Uh, but then that there really was this very strong – it sounds hard-headed, sounding very serious. I mean – I don't know if I quoted him in the book, but there were there were some people pointing out if if you try to understand why austerity was so popular in much of Europe, you want to think about suppose you were a political figure in a in a southern European country. What's your next step in your career? You probably you may well not be reelected or you may be moving on. So your next step is to be giving speeches at Davos talking about the importance of acting responsibly. And so the, the, there's a real incentive to be the, to, to do stuff that sounds hard-headed and serious. And uh, focusing on public debt sounds like that. Now, it, it isn't. In fact, it, it's uh, serious economists um, have, have concluded that debt worries are enormously overblown, but it's very difficult to, that's a hard case to make, to, to, to say that the responsible thing is to borrow and, and invest in infrastructure, not to obsess over debt, is a really hard thing to get across to the general public. And it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't sound like, you know, what, what a hard headed person is supposed to be saying. This is still an active debate, as you say. And in fact, there seems to be some shifts in Europe. You do have more of a focus in both the UK, also in um, the continent about sort of investing for growth. But I suppose some of the proponents of this, certainly over the euro crisis period, said if you didn't have austerity and controlled debt, then bond markets will punish you. So this idea of bond vigilantes. Right. So I I suppose that would be the counter that's still out there. Well, yeah. One of my favorite columns, actually, personally, was when I wrote just when all this was starting called Myths of Austerity. And I actually introduced two characters, one of which was the invisible bond vigilante because this was always what people say, but in fact, they never showed up. And um, the the other uh, was was the confidence fairy. The belief you can cut spending, and even though that depresses the economy directly, it'll be more than made up for by an increase in private sector confidence, which never happens. Now, the interesting thing about Europe is that there was, for a while, it looked like there was, in fact, a, a crisis of confidence over debt in Europe, and that everyone was going to be like Greece. And it turned out that 
it, that was just a panic. It was liquidity panic. And Mario Draghi ended it with three words. He said, whatever it takes. And all of a sudden, everybody calmed down and all the bond yields went down. And the list of countries that look like Greece is in full Greece and well, actually, there's nobody else. Greece turns out to be a completely unique case. Nobody else has turned into a Greek scenario. And, of, of course, right now, anyone who's talking, whether in the U.S. or the U.K., about, well, we need to be worried about the bond markets and debt. I mean, the bond markets are desperate to lend money to our countries, uh, even more so on, on the continent in Europe. But real interest rates are, are negative, both sides of the Atlantic, uh, the and well below the growth rate of the economy. So the Essentially, the, the private sector is is begging governments to take our money and do something with it. And austerity is is a fundamentally a crazy economic strategy at this point. You mentioned tax cuts for the rich already, but I just want to come back to that. The zombie idea around tax cuts for the rich. Now, this one's been around for decades. Yeah, it goes back to you know, the nineteen seventies. Ronald Reagan claimed that tax cuts would pay for themselves. George H.W. Bush called that voodoo economic policy, and he was right. Then it, 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 I have to say, I'm, I'm particularly happy because that kind of ties in with the zombies theme. But anyway, the <laughs> uh, but it has never worked. In the United States, we've had repeated cases of tax cuts for the rich that were supposed to pay for themselves. Every single time, it has led to an explosion of the budget deficit. And yet, when we were debating a tax cut in 2017, Essentially, every Republican in the, in the U.S. Senate said, oh, I'm convinced that this tax cut will actually increase revenue. So that, that still eating, still eating brains after all these years. And I guess the reason for that is what you mentioned before. This idea won't die because of financial interests. Yeah. If you look at the people who advocate this point of view, there are no, you know, I'm not big on credentials, but still for what it's worth, there are no serious academic economists who even conservatives who will who will make this case we 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 know that no essentially no people who actually do economics for for the sake of doing economics agree with this doctrine so everyone who advocates it is essentially a, a paid advocate they one way or another it's is basically their their salary comes from advocating things that that serve the interests of the billionaires who fund their think tanks or or their media organizations. And as Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. And that's uh, that's it, it's really it's, it goes along with a, you know one of my other uh, climate denial. If you ask how many climate you know what percentage of climate change denialists are on the essentially on the take from the fossil fuel industry, the answer is one hundred percent. And that's the same for the the idea that tax cuts pay for themselves. So before I move to some of the other issues I wanted to uh, to touch on, you write in the book. It's it's a very well written book, very clever um, titles of chapters, and you also describe sort of various categories of economists and professionals. That's right. Um, do you want to kind of talk yeah. me through that? So what I say is there are three kinds of economists. There are liberal professional economists, uh, conservative pro professional economists, and professional conservative economists. So, you know, among pe people who are actually trying to understand the world, economists are people, they have political preferences, they have views. On the whole, economists are a, rel a, a relatively conservative 
among certainly among social scientists, economists are much more likely to be political conservatives than sociologists are, or possibly even than political scientists are. And there there are plenty. So there are plenty of people I can respect intellectually who are economists who are also you know. Uh, somewhat conservative in their political preferences. They're they're uh, less in favor of uh, of a strong social safety net than I am, and that's you know I I disagree, but as I disagree on a on a values basis. But then there's a this third category, which is professional conservative economists who are effectively paid to advocate policies that serve the interests of the of the right wing and and um, and particularly of the of the wealthy individuals who finance the right wing there isn't any comparable group on the left because billionaires surprise tend to be right wing so and there's a big difference so there we actually so as we speak trump donald trump is trying to put uh, judy shelton on the board of the federal reserve and there are plenty of conservative monetary economists who are genuine monetary experts but that's not what Trump wants. He wants someone who is a complete hack. I mean, there's there's not at all serious, no professional reputation, and also now a demonstrated willingness to completely change her positions based on political expediency. So the, Judy Shelton would be an example of a professional conservative economist, and it, it's quite amazing that this is this is what the GOP wants in the United States. They don't, they don't want they don't want the Genuine monetary experts who also happen to be fairly conservative. They want people who are, who are just basically on the payroll and will, will say whatever they're told to say. I want to move to another zombie idea or certain topics that you, uh, you cover in the book. Um, the euro. So this is something you've written about for a long time. Um, is there anything that you want to sort of highlight there? Well, I mean, I, I don't usually think of it as a zombie, although there is certainly so. But it, let, let, let's not try to do that it, to map it too much into my into my brain eating thing, and just talk about you know the euro. It, I guess in the it, it does it fits in the in the in the sense that if you thought hard about the economics, we actually have a we thought a lot of people have have put a lot of work into trying to think when should two countries share a currency. And there are obviously pros and cons. There are some obvious advantages to simplicity, ease of transactions, but there are also downsides, which is difficulty in adjusting when when things go bad. Having your own currency can often be very helpful. And when you looked hard at Europe, it did not look like the kind it did not look as if Europe had the institutions that would make a single currency a success. You didn't have a, a, a unified banking safety net. You don't have a fiscal federalism, which where uh, troubled regions are kind of automatically cushioned from the effects. Uh, uh, you didn't have enough mobility, really, of people, which is which is helpful also. So the euro was a very questionable and probably bad idea, and. Us ugly Americans were saying that from the beginning, but it was it was kind of uh, you know, I, I, even even after the euro crisis broke in full, a lot of European officials um, would just refuse to admit that the single currency had anything to do with the problem. It was kind of a the euro cannot fail; it can only be failed. Right? It was a. Uh, and so that it, this was a disastrous decision. It created a huge crisis for for much of Europe. And 
I still think there ought to be a statue of uh, of, of Gordon Brown in Trafalgar Square because he was the one who kept Britain out of the euro and saved you from a lot of that. I want to talk trade wars um, and President Trump. Now, of course, um, this could take a long time, but I'm going to see if we can focus just on what you think of as, as maybe maybe just the biggest misconception around trade wars. If that. Oh wow! So the the great naive fallacy in trade is the notion that it's it's a zero sum game that. If I sell someone, if I sell stuff to another country, I win. If I buy stuff from another country, I lose. So that the trade, you know, the trade imbalance is the measure of of winning or losing in trade. And that's a obviously silly point of view, except it happens to be what, as far as we can tell, Donald Trump believes. And the weird thing about this, there does not actually appear to be a strong constituency for protectionism even in the Trump era in the United States. There are not a lot of members of Congress demanding it. There's not even the sort of trade skeptical parts of the American electorate, labor unions, have not really been demanding a trade war. This is just a personal thing. This is Donald Trump is who sees the world in terms of winning and losing, also sees trade in terms of winning and losing and not somebody who's going to talk to a serious economist and find out that, that that's not what they believe. And the U.S. system, for what seemed to be good reasons historically, gives the president enormous discretionary power. He can, he can in fact, slap on tariffs without legislation. He can, he can make trade deals up to a point without legislation. And Trump has gone ahead and used that power, abused it, actually, so that one of the the, the uh, you're allowed to put on tariffs to protect national security, and the definition of national security is is unclear. It's there's supposed to be a process, but Trump has just went ahead and said, "Well, imports of steel from Canada threaten our national security," which is insane. But no one can say no. So there we are, and we're, we're having a lot of you know, moderately destructive. I don't think it, people people exaggerate how the the dangers of of protectionism they they're real it does hurt but it's it's not the most important thing i can't resist i have to ask you about brexit yeah uh, <laughs> so so brexit i consider a mistake it will make britain poorer i think the remainers did make a mistake by predicting immediate dramatic disaster and that doesn't seem to be happening. And actually, I I called that one right. I, I said, you know, I think people are 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 going to be sorry at predicting too much uh, disaster. Of course, I made that mistake myself in the past, but quickly apologized for it on on other issues. What Brexit does is it it's not it's not the tariffs, it's the frictions. What the EU did. There's lots of things to criticize about the EU, but the EU did create not just free trade, but a customs union. So that there are no internal tariffs, no border checks, goods can flow more or less frictionlessly between different parts of Europe, which is a, a big help. It helps you have a, a truly integrated manufacturing system, truly integrated economies comparable to that of the United States. And Brexit, even if the UK reaches a free trade agreement with the EU or even if the tariffs are very low, uh, has reintroduced the frictions. 
So it's, you won't be able to do just-in-time production at a manufacturing plant somewhere in the north of England because you, the, the flow of, of components from European sources will be more difficult. There will be potential delays, and that will, that will hurt. It's, it's not doesn't mean that you're going to have uh, grass growing in the streets of London, but it does mean that Britain is going to be a little bit poorer as a result. Do you think that might change a bit in the 21st century with more services trade? Um, I know this is obviously, they say it's hard to predict the future because it's about the future. Well, the <laughs> I'm one. I get that quote quite right. But <laughs> yeah, no, predictions are hard, especially about the future, I think yes, is the original book, quote. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, that, that's actually Yogi Berra. But anyway, the. Uh, <laughs> Actually, no, because uh, in fact, that's where the sticking point seems to be, as best I can make out in the Brexit negotiations. Services trade, you know, nothing physical flows. So border checks are not an issue, but harmonization of regulations is a critical issue. So the, the, the fact that you, you know, in order to have an effectively unified market in services, the standards that you need to meet have to be the same in, in, in two countries, it, and this is k- kind of what the the single the the frontier in the single market has been: harmonization of regulations. I mean, that's the source of endless jokes. You know, the whole uh, the Euro sausage, right? Uh, what what defines uh, what 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 are the regulations that products must obey? But just in general, and that's the place where. I think it's fairly plausible that Britain will reach a, a free trade deal on goods with the EU eventually, but. The, as, as I understand it, the current government is dead set against accepting harmonization of regulations. So if Britain has different services regulations from those that are set in Brussels, then you have a fragmented market in services. So in fact, the, the pr- increasing role of services trade actually makes Brexit worse, not better. I want to finish off with some discussion, if we may, around what you write in the book that, quote, everything is political uh, for economists and client scientists and others now. Why do you think this has happened? And I guess more importantly, can this politicization of issues be fixed? Well, everything is political because there are interest groups that have chosen to make things political. I mean, we don't the days when there was some common ground of 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 facts that that people would accept and then we could we could argue about you know, politics should be about values not about facts but given our current environment it is not the um, the the debate on climate change is not about how much are we willing to sacrifice a little bit of current consumption in order to slow the pace of global warming. It is, is global warming a giant hoax perpetrated by a vast international conspiracy of scientists? That's coming from the role of interest groups in politics. It's coming from extreme political polarization. And it's, I don't think it ends until we have Basically, the people who politicize everything, and it is one-sided. It's not both sides. It really is the it's the right in in the United States, and I believe to a large extent in Europe as well. It's the right that has decided that facts are that 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 um, facts have a well-known liberal bias, to use the old line. That un- until and, and unless the right suffers a series of really major electoral defeats, and Starts to feel that it needs to feel to be more, uh, more open-minded. Then this politicization will continue, and I don't know when and how that happens. It's going to be 
uh, I think it's it, it, it's going to be a long, long process. It, it, it really uh, un, until right right now, sixty percent of, of Republicans in Congress are climate change deniers. I think the chance of persuading any of those people to look again at the facts is zero. So we have to look towards a future in which that's no longer the case, which means that a lot of those people have to be driven from office, which is not going to happen even if the Democrats sweep next year. That's not going to happen. So it's, uh, it, it's going to be a very long haul. You quote the former Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's observation that everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. Is there anything that we can all do to uh, help us get back to the observation that state? Well, push the facts, first of all, and and don't pretend. One of the great sins of the centrists, if you like, is that they – they want to live in a world where both sides take facts seriously and, we, and we're, we're having serious debates. And so they pretend that we're living in that world when we are not. And so we, the, one of the oldest essays in, in the book is something I wrote during the 2000 election. And so, you know, so I think – so I have a section on the media and I wrote back then that if a presidential candidate said that the earth was flat, the newspaper headlines would read, Views Differ on Shape of Planet. And there's still a lot of views differ on shape of planet reporting out there. And that we can try to stop doing. If, if someone is saying, if an important political figure is saying things that are just flat out false, that's how it should be reported. You should not be, it, and it should be up there. It shouldn't be in paragraph 17 of the article. It should be up there at the fact uh, that Donald Trump falsely claims that because uh, otherwise you're doing a, a terrible disservice to your, to your readership. And finally, I'm going to ask you, what is your biggest frustration about being such a prominent public intellectual? Oh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm that frustrated because I've, I've become, I've adjusted to it. I mean, the, but the, the, the thing that you need to realize, and I'm not sure everyone who's in this position has realized it, is how very limited your reach is. How your ability, if you can shift the direction of events you know, a fraction of a degree, that's a, a huge success story. It's it, the it just it, you know I write for the New York Times. The New York Times is the greatest journalistic publication in the world. It has the greatest reach of any publication in the world, which means maybe one percent of the U.S. electorate. And uh, your ability to change people's minds is very limited, partly because there are all these competing voices and partly because, you know, most people have lives to live, children to raise, jobs to do, and they're not paying that much attention. I mean, we've, it, we, we keep a, uh, you know, most, most popular list in the Times every day. And if we look at what is most popular, it's usually led by how to boil a perfect egg, grilling with mayonnaise, you know, people, uh, lifestyle, um, food is, and understandably, I mean, I, I, I have to admit, for, there are some days when that's the stuff I read first because, of, because it's all too stressful. So it is an amazing thing that you can reach a position where probably, I don't know, I, I'm not sure if there are public intellectuals who have more Twitter followers than I do, but but I'm certainly up there in the you know biggest big biggest Twitter presence, and my ability to influence the direction of the country is pretty much indistinguishable. You know, it's it's just uh, it's a big world out there, and no matter how prominent you may seem to be, you're a very very small part of it. 
What's your biggest source of enjoyment from being such a prominent public intellectual? I believe you have a cameo in Hollywood films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did that just to. I, I was in getting to the Greek, where it turns out I had the only printable lines in the movie, by the way, but playing myself. That was fun. I just wanted to see a film production in, from you know in in reality up close. I thought it was that was a that was a bit of tourism. But no, it's the truth is what I enjoy about it a lot now is I actually enjoy the craft, the actual. Okay, here's an economic issue that you could do it with jargon. You could do it. It's there's actually uh, you know, several hundred papers of academic literature about the subject. How do I get that into 800 words of plain English in a way that will be interesting to an intelligent reader who has not been studying the issue? So they, I actually get a lot of pleasure just out of the craftsmanship of putting the stuff together. I have to say, Sasha, one of the things I was most impressed by in the book, which was it's a very punchy read because you're able to summarize so much analysis and data into um, 800, per, 800 words, um, a couple of pages that captures such great ideas. And it's actually, it's actually very hard to do. I think it was Mark Twain that said, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. Yes. The, <laughs> the amount of work that goes into <laughs> distilling stuff down is – I mean, I get it. I've learned. I, I now know what an 800 word idea sounds like. So I'm, when I started, I would start with things and, and realize that, it, that I was to say everything I meant to say would have taken 2000 words. So now I, now I know how to do it, but still it's, uh, it, it, and, and coming up with the, the punchy phrase, the hook that will, get the point across to people is is I mean the, the the biggest satisfaction I get actually is when I've invented a phrase and people are using it without attribution like confidence theory or I, leprechaun economics I use that to describe some of the stuff that 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 happens with tax shifting from corporations and when I see people use those phrases without saying as Paul Krugman said but just using them then I say okay now I've actually made at least a little bit of a difference to the way the world talks. <laughs> Thank you very much Paul. It's another terrific book about you. Pulling together your columns and blogs into this one book gives a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a really punchy read. It's engaging, it's stimulating. And I know, know all of you are going to pick up a copy of this to read it. You're unwittingly going to learn a lot about economics, but in a fun, accessible way. So, Paul Grugman, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on your book. I believe it's already on the New York Times bestseller list. And um, it was my absolute pleasure to ask you questions about it. I'm Linda Yu for Intelligence Squared, and we hope you tune into our other podcasts as well. But absolutely, thank you for listening to this one. And I feel through this podcast, we've already learned more economics by the end. Thank you, Paul. Thank Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.